Hi, this is Steve Chandler, and I want to talk about two different kinds of people. Everywhere you go, whether you're sitting in a business meeting, whether you're sitting with your family, whether you're interviewing people to hire them, you're going to notice from this moment on, from this CD on, from this tape on, that there are two different kinds of people. This is going to allow you to understand people so much faster. It's going to allow you to create a team so much faster and do a lot of things for you. There are two kinds of people. Number one, there is an owner. And it's a person who has created a way of thinking, a habit of thinking that defines them as what I will call an owner. And by owner, I mean someone who owns their own spirit, who owns their own energy, and who owns their own response to any situation. So if I'm an owner, what I mean is I take ownership of my response to any situation. I take complete ownership. When Eleanor Roosevelt said, No one can make me feel inferior without my permission, what she really meant was she was taking ownership. So that's an owner. If you could open up the hardware of an owner, or the software, or the internal biocomputer of an owner, and open it up and look at it, here's the programming you would see. The programming would basically be, I take full responsibility for my happiness in life. That's an owner. Now, that's one kind of person. Another kind of person is a victim. Now, that's the other kind of person. Rather than taking ownership of their response to every situation, what a victim does, out of habit, and it's only a habit, the victim is a victim of the situation, a victim of circumstance, a victim of other people. And how do we know who is who? Well, you can tell a hundred different ways, but I believe the fastest way to tell who you have in front of you is by listening to language. They use a different kind of language. Inside the head of the owner, thoughts are different. And we can tell that the thoughts are different because the language is different. We will hear them using different phrases. The first thing to listen for is how a person talks about life. If the person's an owner, they'll say, I use life. They'll talk about life as if life were an energy source or a gift, something I'm going to use. I have it, so I'm going to use it. I woke up this morning. I noticed that I had it again, so I decided well, I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it for a lot of things today. Now, the victim thinks differently, and you will hear them speaking differently. They think life uses me, so you'll hear nothing but negative things about life. Life is unfair. Life is a burden. Life is a curse. And victims will talk about that all the time. I once had a person in a seminar of mine, a woman, come up to me and say, I've always tried to teach my children that life was unfair. I said, really? And she said, yeah, I mean, I've always tried to make them understand that life is fundamentally unfair. When they would go off to school in the morning, for example... I would say, especially if they had a little smile on their face, remember, honey, life 
is unfair. And as they were going to sleep at night, I would say to them, especially if they looked very peaceful, Okay, have a nice sleep, but remember, life is unfair. And I said, Okay, great. What's your question? She said, How come they're so depressed all the time? And I said, Well, I don't know. You see, what happens is children get programmed one way or the other, and then after a while, they begin to program themselves. And in the end, we have full control over how we program ourselves. I can program myself to be an owner or a victim, and I have total freedom of thought. Now, a victim thinks, life uses me. When something goes wrong, a victim will say, that's life, riding high in April, Shot down in May, that's life. I loaned my daughter my car to practice driving in because she had a test, and then she totaled it. That's life. So, the owner says and thinks, I use life. The victim says and thinks, life uses me. Here's another difference in thinking process as reflected in language. From the owner, you will hear the phrase, get from. This is what I got from that. Here's what I took out of that. Here's the lesson I learned. I took something from it. There's always talking about what they walked away with, what they got from something. Even if it was a totally negative experience, there was a lesson learned. There was a certain strengthening that took place, even really minor. They go to a movie, perhaps, that they don't like, and they come out and say, well, what I got from that movie was a new determination to never go to a film that has both Winona Ryder and Richard Gere in it. And so they got a new film guideline. And so they will always look to get something from a situation, and they'll always talk about what they got from it. The victim, on the other hand, uses this phrase, get through. And you hear them use that phrase all day, trying to get through this, trying to get through that, and you can ask them any question, and their answer will be that they're trying to get through it. For example, how are things at work? Ah, uh, having some tough times at work right now, trying to get through it. We'll get through it. How are things at home? Well, you know, we've got a couple teenagers living at home right now, trying to get through that period in our lives. Hopefully they'll be moving out soon. Well, how's your relationship? Well, we've got our problems trying to get through them. Actually, when I think about it, it's a problems-based relationship, and we work through them the best we can. How's your life trying to get through it? What bothers me and worries me is the dying process. I uh, hear that's hard to get through. So really, a victim doesn't have anything that they're not trying to get through. Even if you say, what will you do once you get through that, they don't know. They will say, well, there'll be other things to get through. So the owner is get from, and the victim is get through. Let's move to the victim's side and start there with this language. The word should. Hugely victim word. Should. Any variation on it. I should. I ought to. I'm supposed to. I'm obligated to. They're going to get me if I don't. I should. The word should is very demotivating. It really causes the opposite reaction inside the human system. 
rather than fire someone up, it causes someone to crash. Ask yourself, when was the last time you really fired yourself up by using the word should? When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you were really excited about doing something because you told yourself you should do it? Probably never. Should is a victim word. Should is a word that reflects an inner view of life as if I'm trying to live up to other people's expectations all the time. And that's basically how victims think they live always trying to live up to other people's expectations. On the owner's side, what you have is not I should, but you have the language of intention. So an owner will say, I want to, I choose to, I will, I intend to, instead of should. That's the language of ownership. Now notice that they're not just trying to pump themselves up or use affirmations. An owner doesn't say, I love to, I like to, when they don't. They say, I want to. They might even hate doing the thing that they've just said they want to do. And they might want to do it because they hate it. They might want to do it to put it behind them so they don't have to think about it anymore. But that's ownership. I want to do this now. I want to get this out of the way. And then I want to do that. A victim is, well, I should do this, I guess I should do that, and I guess I should. So anytime that language is used, it has a profound effect on the human system. The energy system is affected negatively by victim language and victim thoughts. And then, on top of that, victims say, oh, I'm really fatigued, I'm tired, I'm stressed, I'm overwhelmed, I'm swamped. And what they don't see is 90% of that swamped, overwhelmed, fatigued feeling comes from their own thought patterns. Here's a question that an owner asks a lot. How can I use this? Oftentimes an owner will be confronted with a situation or a problem or something very uncomfortable. And they'll step back. They'll get a few degrees separation between them and the situation. Take a deep breath, take a walk, meditate, whatever. And then they'll ask, how can I use this? How can I use this situation? Yes, I might be having a difficult time with my teenage son. And maybe we've had an incident, some kind of blow up. How can I use it to create a better relationship? How can I use it? to create a better agreement. And the owner is always looking into situations to see where the hidden gold is in the situation. Because it's almost always there. All it takes is creativity. The victim, on the other hand, doesn't ask the question, how can I use this? The victim will more often ask the question, why does this always happen to me? Why is this happening to me? Why is everybody always picking on me? And so the victim's always asking that rhetorical question that once again exaggerates the picture the victim has of being a victim. Another question the owner likes to ask is, what can I do? 
When faced with something, something breaks down, something goes wrong, what can I do? What can I do? What the victim will ask in the face of a breakdown is, who can I blame? Even for little things, you'll notice this. Throughout the workplace, let's say an owner walks up to a stamp machine and it isn't working. He might look around and say, what can I do? Does anybody know where the stamps are to put in this? Anybody know where the manual is? What can I do to fix this? The victim says, hey, who used this last? Who's supposed to keep this up and running? Who can I blame? Who can I blame? And that's always the question. Who can I blame? The problem with walking around in life and asking constantly, and I bet you know people on your team who are always looking for the answer to the question, who can I blame? The problem with that is it creates an internal sense of not having any power. It creates an internal sense of not owning my own life. And that's a problem. That causes a person to lose focus, to be unable to set goals and achieve them, and to actually be a bit of a morale problem whenever there's a group of people trying to achieve something together, whether it's a business team, any kind of team, even a family. On the ownership side of the ledger, you will often hear the word we. We. We're going to do this. We will do that. We do it this way. Our time cards are done because we want this. We, we, we. On the victim side, you hear the word they. Oh, look what they're making me do. Look at what they're asking me to do. Why do they want me to do this? Why do they always do that? They, they, they. Victims always separate themselves from other groups in the organization. Victims always quickly distinguish themselves and isolate from other teams, other departments, other people. There's not much we in their conversation because there's not much we in their thinking. They haven't taken ownership of the fact that they're on a team and that they are voluntarily on the team, that they volunteer to come to work every day. They're not forced to. And they volunteer to join this team and work as a team for a common goal. Victims don't acknowledge that. They would rather, to preserve their victim's stories, have it be that there are all kinds of people out there inside the organization that are different than they are, have different agendas, and are, frankly, a major problem. Here's a very interesting difference between the two mindsets, owner and victim. And it comes with the word commitment. To an owner, a commitment is a decision. And you know it's a decision because that's how they speak. I made a decision to commit to this program. I made a decision to commit to this person for the rest of my life. It's a decision that I made, myself, of my own free will. And that's what a commitment is. Now listen to the victim. The victim, on the other hand, will not talk about commitments that way. Because, to a victim, a commitment is not a decision. 
A commitment is a feeling. How do we know that? Well, listen to the victims speak. All they talk about is whether they feel committed to something or not. Not whether they are, but whether they feel. And you'll hear a victim say, You know, I'm not feeling as committed to my profession as I used to. I'm not feeling as committed to my job as I used to feel. I'm not feeling as committed to my spouse as I used to feel. And so, for a victim, commitments are feelings. They come and go. They're like stomach gas. You have it one day, you don't have it the next. Now look at how hard it is to keep promises, to keep vows, to keep commitments, if they're feelings that come and go. And that's a primary thought process that separates owner and victim. Here's a major ownership thought. I don't need a reason to be happy. I don't need a reason to be happy. On the victim's side, people, places, and things make me happy. Notice the difference there. To a victim, happiness comes from outside events, things beyond their control, other people, places I might be or not be, things I might have or not have. That's what makes me happy or unhappy. To an owner, happiness is on the inside. Happiness is what I bring to a relationship, not what I try to get from the relationship. Happiness is what I bring to the workplace, not what I try to extract from the workplace. It's a completely different orientation. Here's another powerful ownership language and thinking position. An owner says, if there's a problem, I'm the problem. A victim says there shouldn't be problems. An owner says, if there's a problem, I'm the problem. Now, why does an owner say that? Because it isn't literally true. I mean, the owner might not have had anything to do with the problem. But the owner likes that position because it gives him or her a way to look at the problem that's very powerful. It gives them leverage, because if I'm the problem, I'm the solution. It gives me a place to come from that's very strong. It isn't about blame. I'm not blaming myself. I'm looking into myself and trying to find out what can I do right here? What can I do about this to alter this? The victim is completely opposite. The victim is saying, you know what, there shouldn't be problems. I'm upset that there's a problem. I don't want to think about it right now. And victims have a very characteristic avoidance going on. Because once they start thinking there shouldn't be problems, I don't like problems, I don't like to think about problems, all of a sudden they're into a very heavy avoidance pattern in their lives. And what that does, it causes the problems to get bigger, multiply, grow, become more dangerous. And victims then turn around and say, see, I told you, I got nothing but problems. And they get worse and worse and has nothing to do with me. They grow on their own. 
The owner-victim choice is very important in organizations, in families or any kind of partnership, because it exists at the level of being instead of doing. It goes all the way down, almost, to what you might call the DNA level of the human being. It lives at the level of being. Am I being an owner, or am I being a victim? It isn't about doing something. It's about who I'm being. So, subconsciously, wordlessly, what an owner is asking is, who do I need to be right now? And who do I need to be to have that happen? Whereas a victim is saying, why am I the way I am? Why am I not more like him? Why am I not more like her? You see, the owner sees, I can shift who I'm being. I'm not trapped in some kind of personality. Personalities are things that most of us constructed around the high school years as a kind of place to hide out inside of. They're not really real. We can be anybody we want to. I mean, anybody taking an acting class or an improv class or going through all kinds of group therapy finds out, my, there's a lot of people in me. I can be a lot of different people. And we know that deep down. A victim doesn't, though. A victim says, well, I'm just the way I am. I, I'm lazy. I'm disorganized. I'm cowardly. I'm this. I'm that. I'm not good at this. And then the victim stays trapped in that false construct, whereas the owner is always saying, who would I need to be to have that happen? And they operate at the level of being. One of the reasons why training is so hard to implement and why training often doesn't work at all is because people try to put it in at the level of doing. In other words... They try to tell people what to do, and they skip over who that person is being. So if you have a victim, and you're telling them what to do to be nice to customers, but there's a victim at the level of being, they may say the words in the script, they may do those things, but the customer picks up right away on the fact that this person's not happy, this person's surly, this person's not even making eye contact with me, this person would rather I not even be here. And yet the person's doing the right things, but the person's not being who we need that person to be, to have a good company. Now, only one out of thousands of companies ever get this, that unless they pay attention to the psychological software in the company, and unless they pay attention to their people at the level of being, instead of trying to ladle on and overlap things at the level of doing, things blow up in their face. Companies have tried to copy companies who get it. Nordstrom really got it. We need to be people who trust and love our customers. Other companies said, what's Nordstrom doing? Oh, they're giving... They're letting people return things. Oh, that's great. So we'll try to do that. And then they would put in a policy where you could return things. 
But they were being so nasty about it, they were being so unkind about it, that people, after a while, didn't even want to return things. It was such an unpleasant experience. The same with Southwest Airlines. Other airlines were saying, well, what are they doing that we could do? It was the wrong question. They should have been asking, who are they being? That's the right question. A major victim word is the word swamped. You will hear victims using the word swamped all the time. I'm swamped. I'm sorry, honey, I couldn't make your birthday party, but you know Daddy was swamped. And here's the thing about swamped. Swamped isn't a reality. There's no such thing as swamped. Swamped is a word people use to label something. Swamped is an interpretation of some situation. But if you put another person in the same situation, they might interpret that situation as busy. Boy, I'm busy. It's fun. It's exhilarating. Last place I worked, I was standing around all the time. Nothing to do. That was horrible, boring. But here, it was really busy. I love it. Now, it might be the same situation. To one person, they're busy. To the other person, they're swamped. Now, here's what an owner really is. The owner is not swamped for a very special reason. The owner knows that he or she can only do one thing at a time. Really, you can only do one thing at a time. And the owner knows that I will do the one thing I'm doing in a focused way. And by doing it in a focused way, I'll do it quickly, and I'll do it really well. And when it's finished, I'll be complete. And that's what I call focused. And who I am is focused. And I have my list of things to do in order of priority. And I'm doing the top one on the list in a focused way. Am I swamped? No. How could I be swamped? doing this one thing, and then I'll move on to the next thing. And if there are too many things, there are simply too many things, but I'll know going home that I've done the most important things, and that's a good feeling. Victims, on the other hand, they're always looking at the whole list and saying, I'm swamped. No way I can do all this. Then they go out and they talk and they stand around the coffee machine and they complain with other swamped people. Meanwhile, the list is getting longer. Then they come back, and they do a few of the things on the list, but they aren't even the most important things. So when they get home, they realize, my gosh, I haven't even done the most important things. i got to come in early tomorrow. I'm really swamped. Major victim word is the word try. I'll try. I'll try. Major victim word. Ask yourself. If you ask someone, will they be able to pay you back by next Friday? And they say, I'll try. Are you now counting on the money? Well, why not? A person's going to try. Isn't that good? No, it's not good. Because what try means, it's, a, it's one of the favorite words the victim uses. It really means don't count on it, doesn't it? It means don't count on it. The owner will speak in language that has clarity. You can count on it. The owner might even say, well, I won't be able to pay you Friday, 
but I will be able to pay you by next week. So count on it by Wednesday, and if I can get it earlier than then, I'll get it to you. So the owner is definite, even to the point of being negatively definite. No, I won't be able to do that. I'm sorry, I'd love to go to lunch with you, but that's not going to fit my schedule for a few weeks. What else can we do? Can we have a phone conversation? The victim will say, yeah, yeah, let's have lunch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll have lunch with you. Mm-hmm. And then the victim won't. The owner is clear. The owner tells you what you can count on, and you can count on it. The victim will say, I'll try. Let's try. Now, we could go on for many, many other phrases and words and thoughts that fall in the owner category and the victim category, but I think you get the point. The point is this. We have a fundamental choice. We can choose to own our own response to the situation, or we can be a victim of the situation. Now, that choice exists all day, all night, in every situation. It doesn't suspend itself in some situations. It's always there, and that's the beautiful thing about it. Because when people begin to practice being aware of the choice and making a choice, all of a sudden, they reroute old patterns, old neural pathways in the brain. And one of the great rewards of my work is I watch people who are victims move over to the ownership side, not because it's better or they should, that would be a victim movement, but simply because it's more fun and it's more enjoyable and it's more effective. It gets more done. If you want to read further, my book, Reinventing Yourself, is all about this. It's a whole book on how to reinvent from victim to owner. That's what it's about. And people reinvent themselves all the time. One of the victim beliefs that's simply not true is that people never change. People are changing every moment. The question is, are they aware and awake to how much they can change? That's the beautiful thing when it happens.